Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider, presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore and Evan Grant. Fellas, it was a big weekend in Dallas Fort Worth sports. I would I would venture to say the biggest weekend of the whole year so far. What do you think? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, with just the variety, you hit on uh, NFL, Major League Baseball, and college football. Uh, the last Red River Classic with two combatants who were in a conference they're about to depart. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think it was a, I think it was a big one. I, I have to go and check my um, weekend's uh, sports rankings from earlier this year to see which where exactly it ranks. But Evan, I, don't be a smart I, Alec Evan. Sorry. Okay. What part? Do, what part does he have to play if he doesn't play that one? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, he's on the road. Even a little bit more smart, Alecky Kevin. I'm sorry. That's okay. We're going to talk about all three of those things eventually uh, today, but uh, you know we want to uh, tell our listeners that as we're taping this, uh, that obviously it is before uh, Game Three of the ALDS between the Rangers and Orioles out at Globe Life Field. Um, so we don't know the results at this point, uh, but we want to talk about obviously the Rangers and what they've done this year. And we're going to talk about the Cowboys' unbelievable collapse. Dak Prescott called it the most humbling game uh, defeat that he's ever experienced. Uh, I felt defeated just watching it. Uh, <laughs> just a just a miserable game played by the Cowboys against the 49ers. And I, and we know you can't you you can't re- overreact to these games either way. You can't you can't put too much into a big win. You can't put too much into a big loss. But for everything that they have pointed towards after two playoff exits, that was. A spectacular flop. I, I I just don't. I can't remember when I've seen the Cowboys be more disappointing than in that loss to the 49ers, forty-two to ten. My gosh, that encompasses a lot of ground over the last couple of decades. Well, it does, and, and you know, and really ever, right? It's the largest de- defeat they've ever suffered against the 49ers. It used to be one of their biggest rivals, certainly their biggest rival of the of the eighties uh, and nineties, and uh, and and to, and to play like that. I, and I don't even know if, if, if that 32 points really tells the tale. I thought it, it, it could have. It felt like 64 points is what it felt like watching it. Yep. It, it, it was almost as if they there was nothing they were going to be able to do to get back in that game. That one drive in the first half, which they got all their their first downs of the first half on that one drive. You know, uh, otherwise they didn't even manage the first down. Uh, it was just just a, a pitiful display by the Cowboys all the way around it and it's not but and I, I think David the thing about that game it's not just that they played so poorly it's that now all the the, the problems that Dak had last year were manifested again right three picks he'd only thrown you know a couple going into the game and uh and now it felt like you know that maybe this offense would protect him a little bit well the the offense was terrible there was no running game whatsoever uh, Dak looked just as lost uh, in the pocket and when he rolled out as he did last year. And and furthermore, David, I, I can't get over the fact that Dak just looks so old and stiff and slow now. He can't get away from anybody anymore. Uh, he's He doesn't kind of give somebody a shoulder and knock them off their feet anymore. Um, and, and he's lost his ability, to, it seems like, to process 
what's going on in the secondary. Um, I, I just don't know where they go from here. Well, you know, I'm, I'm struck because, you know, Dak Prescott is, is such a lightning rod and there's constant social, you're either team Dak or, or, you know, team hater. There's no in between. And so, and, you know, so yeah, his three interceptions came in the second half when he was taking some chances and they were down and he was desperately trying to get them back into the game and so everyone on Team Dak wants to dismiss that and go, well, what do you expect? They were already down. He was trying to make something happen. Well, you know, I don't know that it's written anywhere that when a quarterback is trying to bring his team back that he has to throw interceptions or, or he's more <laughs> likely to throw, you know. Uh, it, it's just it, – and to me, that's where you just can't have a rational conversation in the social media sphere anymore about – Dak Prescott because it's either well did you see is his you know receivers got no separation where you talk oh the play calling what it's like Dak had a horrible game by his own admission uh, so I don't understand why people on Team Dak won't acknowledge that <laughs> you know and but but again it, it speaks to um, that the conversation around Dak Prescott so often has been well, look, Josh Allen will make these mistakes and you don't, you know, trash him in the same way you do Dak Prescott or this or that, compare him to like another quarterback on a certain weekend that has a bad day and go, see, Dak's numbers were better than that. And guess what? He won the game. And my point is, it's actually kind of devolved to the point where it's a relative comparison with Dak. Everyone's trying to compare him to someone else to show, well, see, he's not that bad, or he's getting criticism beyond what this quarterback should. Other than saying, did you see him lead that comeback win? Did you see him be at his best when his team needed him most? Where is that conversation? We haven't had that conversation in a while. And, you know, there were, you were talking about the offense and it's across the board here. I mean, the, the fact that Dallas was down 14 to nothing before it generated a first down tells you that the offense was culpable in this loss. But also, this is a defense that allowed 41 points in the first four weeks of the season and allowed 42 to San Francisco in one game. So, you know, the, the plenty of blame to go around here. But before he, before he was pulled uh, late in the fourth quarter for Cooper Rush on those final two possessions, Dak quarterback Dak Prescott took the field as the quarterback for 11 possessions nine of those 11 possessions were over in three plays or less that is just a dramatic failure for a starting quarterback in a big game so it is so I've been Dak. I've been as team Dak as anybody. I think right, and but I think one thing Jerry said something on the radio yesterday. Or was it Stephen? Who was on the radio yesterday, David? I can't keep track of all the Joneses. Stephen on Monday, Jerry on Tuesday, both of them so, on Friday. So one of one of them, one of the Joneses, basically said we can win. Dak is capable of 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 us winning a Super Bowl, right? And I I've never doubted that. I think. Like to Kevin's point a minute ago, the, the the difference I think for people is that these other quarterbacks, the Josh Allens, the Joe Burrows, those guys seem capable of winning a game by themselves. And I think what we've seen develop with Dak Prescott over the last couple of years 
is he can he can quarterback a team to a big victory. I don't think he can put the team on the show on his shoulders and win the game by himself. And this is from a more casual observer than both of you. I'd certainly be interested in hearing what what you guys say. And the other takeaway for me off of that game is what's clear to me, I think, is that as much as I think this defense, well, at least going into the season, I thought this defense was as good as the Cowboys have run out there in maybe a quarter century, maybe longer. Um, It's no better than third in the NFC, probably behind the Niners and and, and Eagles. Yeah, and and at this point, you know, I would like to apologize to everyone who listens to this podcast for suggesting repeatedly that Dallas, San Francisco, and Philadelphia were the top three teams in the NFC. Dallas clearly does not belong in that conversation. And and this is a team that put themselves, you know, I'm struck, and this this was such a colossal collapse uh, in a significant game that, Let's be honest, there's already a large segment of the Cowboys fan base that's highly skeptical of anything they see from the Cowboys in the regular season because, you know, okay, we've seen this before and it hadn't translated to postseason success. So we're not going to take anything. Everything we see now is fool's gold. You can't show us anything until the postseason. Well, now I was struck. I really truthfully believe, not that this is going to happen, but I really truthfully believe that Dallas could run the table, win 12 straight games going into the postseason, and fans would just go, well, they're not going to get past San Francisco. And why why in the world would anybody, any rational person, think they would get past San Francisco based off of what they've seen? So I I think that's a very, you know, they've built up, this is the team we have to get by, this is what drives us. Uh, this is what our personnel moves are for. We're building toward this moment to where we break through. And, and then to just have the wall collapse on you like that rather than you breaking through, uh, I, I think there's some – I really believe there's some motivational consequences that come with this that, that this team is going to have to kind of fight through here for especially the, the next several weeks. I, I just think – I think this really could have an after effect. I think the larger issue is not what fans think. It's what the Cowboys think. Exactly. You, know, you, you have to wonder now, we're not equipped. If you're a Cowboys player, you have to say, we're not equipped to beat these guys. Uh, we, we're trying to play an offshoot of their offense. And look how they run it. Look how, look how Brock Purdy ran that offense. He was tremendous in that game. Now, I'm going to say this, and, and, and my sons and I, we, we like to pick apart quarterbacks when we watch these games. And, and we've kind of laughed about how, oh, Brock Purdy's not that good. Well, he is that good. So he made some so, remarkable throws and tight windows. And for, oh, my gosh. And for everyone be- on Team Jack saying <sighs> that his receivers aren't getting separation, look at some of the throws Brock Purdy made and how much separation those receivers had from the Cowboys' defense. He's my- dropping throws over linebackers, yeah. over safeties, I mean, and crossing patterns. They're, those are tremendous throws. Uh, he might be the really next were. Tom Brady. You know, the thing is, is that he is the perfect marriage with that offense. They He runs it perfectly already. He knows exactly what he wants to do. I don't believe that Dak has a full grasp of the offense that Mike McCarthy has, has installed. Uh, and I, I think that's leading to some of the issues here. But, you know, and, and not to belabor the, the Dak one, but I do just want to point out it, as a as a example of what we're talking about, putting the team on your back, he had a chance – to, to get a touchdown and, and cut it to seven in the first half when Brandon Cooks was running wide open. He is five yeah. yards. 
past Fred Warner trying to cover him, which was crazy. Chris Collinsworth kept talking about how, oh, he's running right with him. He's he's, no, he he's pulling away from him. He was like seven <laughs> yards away from him by the time the throw got there. And Dak looked like he was in some kind of you know contest to see how far he can throw the football. He heaves it. He practically falls over after throwing it. And the ball, the pass pulls Cooks out of bounds. He is wide open, and it pulls him three steps out of bounds. There was no reason for that throw to be so poor. And that's the thing. You can talk about the grasp of the offense and everything. A guy is running wide open down the field for you, and you don't come close to getting him in bounds for what is could have been a very big touchdown at that point. And so look, that, that was, a, that was a difficult throw rolling in that direction because yeah. you have to get your hips right. But yeah. it's a throw that needs to be made. Kevin, look, it, it can be a difficult throw and still one you should complete, right? And that's if, what it if was. You're, it was. If you're a, a top 10 quarterback, throw. if yes. you're a top 10 quarterback, you make that throw on a wide open player. I'm telling you, I could run out 100 college quarterbacks who can make that throw. Uh, and so th- that, and he was not even getting any real pressure at, at the point of the throw. He did have yeah. to roll out, but that was the point. So, so I think that to me, the issue now I want us to talk about is when CD Lamb says, I don't know what the identity of this team is. Clearly, CD Lamb was, was, uh, ticked off during the game. You know, he, he caught four passes for 49 yards. And, and unbelievably, that led the Cowboys in, in receptions in the game. So I, I, maybe he shouldn't be complaining. At least he got more passes than you know than anybody else but but obviously not enough and it and i think that's also david and you would know this uh, it, it is a kind of a, a continuation of, of his frustration all year long right the lack of touchdown passes that he's got the lack of of targets he's gotten in the red zone all of that just came to fruition in this game in which they were it wasn't just the red zone where they struggled you know, this was struggling. They never up, got in the red zone. They never got in the red zone. It was just a, up and down the field where they struggled at this point. So that's what I want to ask you, David. Is this team uh, losing its faith in the coach? Is it is it losing its faith in the quarterback? Uh, what is the – I mean, I know that's a hard thing to tell in a locker room, especially when it's only Tuesday and Tuesday morning at that uh, uh, with this with this kind of performance. Uh, I know Evan wants to jump in here real quick, but I will say that, that you know, go ahead, Evan. I'm no, 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 no. I, I was fine. I was going to belabor another point. I just, I, I was going to ask another question. I, let's move, let's move on to, to more, more pertinent stuff. Okay. So no, I, I, I do think this is something of a crossroads. I really do. I, I think this is going to test their culture that's been in place in, in a way they haven't been tested yet. Back to back 12 and five seasons. They expected to build on that. Now you're three and two, and you were not competitive uh, against the team that uh, you know you have to get by. Uh, that's a that's a pretty big gut check right there, and uh, you know we're going to find out. Uh, I, I I will say that, that there are significant issues offensively now, but there are some significant issues defensively as well. You know, this, I I will say I don't think this team is going to splinter along the lines of. Oh well, the 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 offense is killing us. They're giving us no shot. Uh, the defense isn't either. In both of their losses, and, and the loss to Arizona, and a loss they shouldn't have, and one that could really come back to bite them late in the season. When you're talking about postseason positioning, uh, you know the Dallas defense allowed Arizona, a team with nothing, to score on all five first half possessions. So this defense. Both of these losses have been total team losses. They really have been. So it's 
you know, um, yeah, they're just in such a, this was such a unexpected response from them and something we haven't seen. Look, this was the worst loss with Mike McCarthy's tenure as a head coach with the Cowboys. It was his second worst loss in his coaching career. Um, so this was out of the blue, but out of the blue doesn't feel as bad if it's against an opponent where maybe you were just sleeping or whatever, right? This is an opponent you were fully awake, fully motivated to beat, and you openly talked about the psychological and symbolic benefits a victory would do for this team. So now you have to accept the psychological uh you know, in symbolic consequences of being blown out the way they were. And, and I, again, I think there's some uh, emotional, I think there's some, some fallout from this that they're going to have to work through. I, 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 you know, I don't think it's just as easy as well. This team always seems to bounce back, so they should take care of the chargers. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, based well, you, off of you, you can. And that, and that was the other thing, you know, cause I, I we talked all awful lot about offense. And I want to talk about defense in the last little bit we have here, but you know, in the previous two losses to the 49ers were by seven to six points. You know, yeah. as as dominant as the 49ers felt in those games, uh, it was only by seven to six points. So uh, you felt Cowboys like they were right there. We're right there. We're going to break through. Now, yes. the, the, it, the gap is a gulf. I mean, oh, that, that's know. right. It, what it feels like to me, David, is that this is just superior coaching. I mean, Kyle Shanahan does a great job with that offense, no question about that. But what it feels like is that now, not only do they have an offense, uh, or, or their defense has always been good and, and has always done a good job, uh, but now their offense knows how to neutralize the Cowboys' defense. They they, yep. they really turned Micah Parsons on his ear. I mean, the, the whole game, they're chipping at him. They're, they're, they've got an extra guy at him. They they, they figured out how to pick him up. Now, I don't know that other clubs are good enough to do that. You know, they don't have the personnel to do it, for one thing, and I don't know that they have the coaching to do it either. But but there's certainly a template now. If any team wants to look at the Cowboys and how do we face this group, to me, you just look at this film and go, wow, look, here's what you do to get, you know, to, to take Micah Parsons out of the game. And it, and it feels like this team, the difference between the two of them, and, it, and it's the same thing with the Eagles. The Eagles and the 49ers are both extremely physical teams on offense and defense. The Cowboys are not. The Cowboys are, are not nearly a physical team on offense. We know that. that the way that's Part of that's the way they're constructed with their personnel, but also in their pack. They just didn't bully anybody. The only time they ran the ball with any success uh, was when they mimicked the tush push and got the, 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 uh, the first down when Dak made that carry. And, and at least they got somebody else's offense right. Uh, so I I feel like when you talk about going into this next time, if they do end up playing the 49ers again, I, I don't know why you would expect a different result. It just felt like this, with a year to prepare for this game and get ready for it, uh, the Cowboys just – they were outclassed. They were outclassed in coaching, and they were outclassed in talent, and they were outclassed in execution. It just – was a, a complete and utter disaster. So I, I really don't, you know, I do think the Cowboys can bounce back there. There's a, a lot of very mediocre teams in, in the NFL. Uh, but your point is it is the, the right one, is that in the NFC anyway, there are the 49ers and the Eagles, and there is a huge drop 
to that next tier that the Cowboys are in. Yes. Now, they have two games with Philadelphia. Uh, division rivals are different. Dallas stacks up very well against Philadelphia, so they can reclaim some of this against them. And, you know, that late in the year, which is going to be fascinating, it's uh, San Francisco and Philadelphia play in week 12 or 13, something like that. In fact, I think they meet the week before Dallas plays Philadelphia again. So uh, that's going to be a significant game. But but I, I think one thing that's happened here is that after two off-seasons of doing everything they can and using San Francisco as the goal of we're catching up, we're going to be there, we're going to pass you, now – Dallas has done that for two off seasons and they come out of this game and how can they do anything, but okay, let's just ride ourselves. And maybe San Francisco comes back to us. Maybe they have an injury. Maybe they, the, the war of attrition of a regular season wears them down and they're not the same team at the end that they are right now. If we can just get back to who we know we are, maybe that's how we win. But, but that flips the mental script too, right? Now you're waiting for them to not be who they are rather than you seizing who you believe you are. You don't think you're on the same level with them. I I mean, and I think that's the takeaway, right? That that Kevin was just talking about that you had a year to prepare for this and and you were all, you were aiming for all of this, Um, that you're simply, if anything, the disparity between the Niners and the Cowboys seems greater now than it did a year ago. that's yeah, twenty yeah. something points greater. You know, it, 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 that's that was not a fluke. You know that that was that's how much better they were than the Cowboys on Sunday. All right, David. Before we get out of this Cowboys segment, we need to talk about the injury situation. So, Leighton yeah, Vander Esch, tangible. Yeah, we're talking about the gap, and now you come out of this game, Leighton yeah. Vander Esch, uh, the 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 scariest of the injuries given his history with cervical stenosis uh, and the spinal column and what he's dealing with. Uh, actually, the the MRIs they had on him are encouraging, um, but he will go on injured reserve this week. He will miss anywhere from four to six weeks minimum, and they'll kind of go from there. So he's out of the mix. C.J. Goodwin, far and away, not only the Cowboys' best special team player, but one of the best special teams players in the league, uh, torn pectoral muscle. He actually suffered the first time he was on the field uh, put the harness on, missed a series, came back with that torn pack and tried to play, but just had no power and couldn't really uh, position his body on the left side. Uh, he will be placed on injured reserve. He'll be lost for the season. Uh, Cavante Turpin, who scored their only, you know, who scored their only touchdown in that game, uh, and, and is a, a very good punt returner for them. Uh, ankle sprain. They will know later in the week. They had the additional day getting getting ready for the Chargers since it's a Monday night game. Uh, they're hopeful he can play against the Chargers, but I would I, I would be a little more skeptical on that. I, I think there's a chance he he misses this game, but but at least his is a short term injury. Leighton Vanderesh won't be around until uh, November, and C.J. Goodwin, you won't see him again this year. Yeah. So, what will they do now? Since uh, since uh, Leighton was the play caller on defense, who will call the plays now on defense? Well, you know, because of their different personnel packages and, and times, Leighton would not be out there. And those times, it would always be one of the safeties would would uh, call the plays, either J. Ron Curse or Malik Hooker. 
given you know what formations they were in. Uh, one of those two or both of those guys will will handle most of the play calling duties. Usually, at least one of them is on the field at, at all times. The the way this team plays defense. Uh, the other interesting one is what is this going to do for Micah Parsons' role? Because defense is the one position on the defensive side of the ball where they lack depth. Now they can move. You know, they've already moved a, a safety, Marquise Bell, down into essentially a linebacker role. Uh, after Overshone went out early in the role he was going to use. Um, but I don't know if you can keep moving safeties down in there. Um, so I, the, the question is, do you rush Micah Parsons less now and use him more as a linebacker, which is how he came into this league? And would that be the best use of where he is now? And maybe because uh, you still have some good – you have more strength and numbers on your pass-rushing defensive front than you do at linebacker. And so those are the questions they're sorting through here early this week as they put together their game plan for the Chargers. And maybe, you know, that's not a bad idea anyway. If yeah. if you the way you watch the 49ers target him in that game, if if he's because it's easier to target him when he's lined up at defensive end. It is not sure. as easy when he's at linebacker, right? That's a second layer. So, you know, or second level. So um, I, I think they might be better off if he played a little bit more at linebacker if teams are going to play him this way, maybe against certain teams. It depends on what they do, right? You know, it depends on what their schemes and what their abilities are and, and all of that. So it'll be very interesting to see how they, they play this out uh, going forward. But this, you know, this is going to be – the Chargers are a good team. Uh, they got great talent and got a, a great young quarterback, Justin Herbert. Uh, and that's, that game is on the road. So this will say a lot about the Cowboys too, how they bounce back from this. Uh, if there are lingering issues and, and doubts about the system and about their quarterback and about their head coach, uh, I think we'll see that against San Diego. Now, if there's, uh, I think we'll, we'll tell by their performance. If there's a, a hangover from this loss that goes into that game, well, then we know there are bigger issues here uh, with the Cowboys. Uh, if not, then we'll then we'll see that, that you know, at least they were able to to hold on to their faith in what they're trying to do and just try to get better at the execution of it. Yeah, and and very quickly, just I want to get to the range. You know, I know we want to get to the Rangers uh, on the Dak Prescott. The last thing on that before we go to Rangers, I think the thing you know we were talking about you know leading a team to victory and and you know rising to the occasion. One of the last times Dak Prescott did that was in New England a couple of years ago. An overtime win made the pass in overtime for a victory over New England. And on that play, he came down, strained his calf, and missed the next game. So <laughs> that kind of that kind of feeds the narrative about where he is right now, right? Even when he makes a play to win a game, he hurts himself and takes yeah. himself out of the equation. He's it's just a very, very odd position he's in right now. It is, I, I, and I and I just feel so, so many times now there were a lot of close-ups of uh, Dak in that game after some of the mistakes and things, and uh, and I, it's the same look he had last year. The, it, it, he just looks lost to me, uh, and I, I am, uh, and I'm at a loss to explain it, you know, because I I was I've kind of always been on Team Dak, and always and for one thing, you just hate him to endure all the abuse that he takes. I I, I hate to see one yeah. player soak up all that this is not all tax fault clearly uh i don't know that uh that mike mccarthy's done a great job with uh, installing this offense and having them ready to play it uh i was all i was all for it and what they wanted to do and i understood why they wanted to do it but when you can't execute it 
then it's a failure. It doesn't matter what the scheme is. If you can't execute it, it's a failure. Yep. All right, let's move on over to talk about the Rangers. Uh, as we noted at t- up top, um, they will uh, be playing tonight before uh, we finish taping this. So uh, there's a possibility they could uh, clinch this thing by the time you listen to this. Uh, in any case, the season won't be over. Uh, they'll still be playing because they'll have uh, at least two more shots after this. Well, they'll have two more shots after this to, to, to win out, after winning those first two games in Baltimore. Uh, Evan, you wrote about uh, the Rangers' defense uh, today, and I thought that was good because you know that's really been kind of overlooked this year. How much better they've been defensively uh, uh, from last year to this year? Yeah, you can go around the the diamond pretty much and see where the individuals have improved. You know, first of all, they're getting really good defense at third because they had an assortment of guys playing that position last year. Corey Seager has played much better at shortstop this year than he did last year. Marcus Simeon is probably in the running for a gold glove. Nate Lowe has improved tremendously at first base. He's still not a he's still not a great first baseman, but he is much better than he was uh, the last couple of years. Um, and then, of course, Adonis Garcia always plays well in right field, and, and Leone Tavares is a good center fielder. Uh, it depends on who they put out there in left field. Uh, certainly, Evan Carter is an excellent uh, outfielder and a, a tremendous left fielder. And then Jonah Hyman, the catcher, he's as, uh, he's as good as there is. So um, how did this all happen, Evan? Well, I mean, I think you just kind of summed it up. A lot of it was just a couple of personnel changes. I think the other part that goes really overlooked um, was that they were dreadful the last couple of years and didn't pay much attention to pitchers fielding. And I think that, you know, pitchers fielding played a big part in that game one win at Tampa Bay. Jordan Montgomery made a great play and he wasn't he wasn't with this team in spring training, so he didn't go through all that. But there was a tone set in spring training and Mike Maddox is serious about pitchers fielding being important. And he brought, you know, the all-time leader in gold gloves in for all of spring training and made it a priority that we're going to get better at this. Um, and and so I think that that was another area that they improved in. But, but clearly the biggest upgrades are that Josh Young is a far better third baseman than they've had since Adrian Beltre retired. Um, Nathaniel Lowe continues to improve at first. And, yeah, I think that the last month um, they've had great left field play from Evan Carter, that's not to take anything away from the days that Travis Jankowski, that Travis Jankowski started out there early in the year. He was a good defensive left fielder as well. Um, I think a lot of it, one thing that Chris Young said to me, and, and Bruce Bochy echoed the same thing, is, look, defense is the one place where if you just work hard, you can get better. And they have. They've put in the work. You know, I, I think a lot of it starts with the tone that Simeon starts on how important it is for him to go out every day and take ground balls and do defensive fundamentals. I think Josh Young had that in him, and I think he also has looked up to what Simeon has done because those are the two guys who are out on the field every day early working with Corey Ragsdale. Um on defense, uh, I thought, you know, and, and they wanted to brag a little bit about this, but the play on which Heim threw out Gunnar Henderson was a blown hit and run on, in, in Saturday. But the process, to me, speaks to where this team is in terms of working on the fundamentals, right? 
Bobby Wilson had had looked at, J- at Jonah's numbers when it came to exchanging the baseball from getting the bait from receiving it to getting it in his throwing to when it leaves his throwing hand. Jonah's really tall. He's really good at framing, so he goes out and he gets the ball. Well, he's had to work in those situations to kind of let the ball travel a little bit deeper so he didn't have to expand the amount of time that he had those long limbs going out to get the ball and bringing it back. What's he end up with? A .57 exchange rate in a huge, uh, .57 seconds in a huge situation According to the Rangers and what they had done research on on the, on the baseball stat cast system is that was the fastest by any catcher in the big leagues for a pitch that was in the lower part of the zone. So they identified something that they could get better at, even if it was a fraction of a second, and they got better at it, and it made a huge out for them in a big situation. I just think that all goes to the philosophy that this team has put in place that's central to it is dominate the fundamentals, right? They they talk about being a good teammate, about being a good teammate and playing with a passion. Dominate the fundamentals is all about defense. Do the things right defensively and you're a good fundamental team. And that's what this team has done really all year. And it does get amplified in the playoffs. You know, last night or Monday night, we saw Michael Harris make a great play to end the Braves-Phillies game and double off Bryce Harper at first base. Defense in the postseason shows up, and it can often be the difference between winning and losing games. This is not to take a shot at Elvis Andrus. He's a very good, was a very good defensive shortstop for the Rangers, but three errors in Game 5 in 2015 lost that division series for the Rangers. So this is a better defensive team. It has been a better defensive team. I don't know if I completely buy into the run saved metric, but at least according to that index, this team went from a bottom third of the league team in 2022 to a top third team in 2023. And that really basically comes down to work and philosophy. Yeah, the the big difference, and and I didn't even go over that, and I'm glad you did, uh, in defense is really a, a pitcher. I mean, last year, that was his most, they had the worst fielding pitching staff in baseball did, did they did they not yes i I, yeah. and I think statistically there may have been one or two worse but it was bad it was noticeably bad and there were games lost because the pitchers didn't field field pitches and this is one area where you know i actually differed with chris woodward because he basically wanted his pitchers to spend time worrying about pitch design pitch full up pitch sequencing and all that stuff and that's 95 percent of the game um and he wasn't that focused on pitchers defense but I think for a championship team, your pitchers are going to have to make plays in big situations on occasion. And I think this team has spent more time on that. Yeah. It, it, isn't that the story, though, in coaching in general, right? It, it, it is always to me when a new coach comes in someplace, a, a new coach, new manager, new staff, whatever it is. And uh, then you hear the players say, wow, we were just we were just doing things we'd never done before. We were really, you know. We were really concentrating on things. I, I'll go back to the, the time I interviewed Gordon Wood and, you know, the great Brownwood uh, high school football coach. And, and he said, when we ran practice, we made a mistake. We ran the play again. We made another mistake. We ran the play again. He said, we ran the, we ran the play until nobody made a mistake. He said, that might, it might take two hours. And that's what we would do. And, and, and it's as simple as that. You know, uh, you, you hear a lot of talk, and it's nice to hear that because I hate for Ron Washington to go down as the manager who did not uh, do what he needed to do to win that World Series for the Rangers. But you hear an awful lot of talk about what Ron Washington has done for defensive players, Marcus Simeon in particular, and, and made him from what 
a, a, a below average shortstop into a guy who's who's going to win gold gloves and has won a gold gloves as second baseman. So, uh, but that's just all that is, as you said, is work. It is it's just simply that it is just going out there day after day after day and working on these kind of things. And and so to me, that was the the failure of, of Chris Woodward to me and a really good guy, uh, but he epitomized the whole new generation of, um, of, of, you know, uh, managers and coaches in the, and in, in the days of, of analytics is that all these things are really important. And Bruce Bochy is using those things. As you pointed out in your story the other day, Evan, that they, they are, he is taking these things and they're processing them and they're, and they're using them to their benefit, but they're also old school in the fact that you just got to do these things. They're just some things you have to do in baseball. It's, it's, it's a physical game. There's a, there's a, obviously a big mental aspect to it, but there's a big physical part of it. And the physical part is by doing things over and over and over again, there's a muscle memory built up and you start to do these things and you're confident in them when you do them. And, and when you're confident in your defense uh, and that you know it's going to play every night, and that's the beauty of defense, right? It should play every night. Offense is not always going to do it. Pitching is not always going to do it, but the defense should be there every night. When you're confident – your heart rate doesn't start to race when the ball is hit to you. And when your heart rate doesn't race, you don't your your body doesn't move faster than it needs to. And you just simply play under control. And that's what the Rangers have done really well all year. Yeah, that that's the thing that I, I think people don't understand. And one of the reasons why I'm in favor of robot umpires. I heard one of the broadcasters on one of the games, I, I might have been the Rangers broadcast over the weekend. Uh, he was a pitcher, and he said, "You know, I just don't want to see this happen because there's an art form to all this, and it's it's the pitchers adjusting." It was, it was probably Smoltz because Smoltz doesn't like anything new about the game. It's he's, he has become <laughs> as as much as I like John Smoltz as a broadcaster and as a pitcher, he has become grumpy old man. Um, oh, yeah, get off my lawn. Yeah, but, but look, it, the ball strike situation is bad, Kevin. It's just been bad. Well, it is bad because here's the thing, and I make this point over and over again, is that there's a huge difference between the count being one and two and two and one. That's that's one pitch. You get one pitch wrong or or in some cases egregiously wrong. It changes the approach of the pitcher. It changes the approach of the hitter. Everything is now different. You have put this guy in a hole. Uh, and, and I just – I, I, these little things, like uh, you know, Josh Young starting the double play the other night, uh, and on a, a really nice pickup on a hard hit ball, you know, he doesn't make that play. You know, game's completely different, right? You know, and and those yeah. things, those are the things you don't make a big. I mean, you may not make a. You know, that was a, a big play in the game, and it got its rightful due. But there are a lot of times that, that plays are made, things are done, pitches are made, and you you take those for granted. And uh, in baseball, you can't take that stuff for granted. Everything builds to a certain point. Uh, it, it when when players make errors, pitchers are having to make more th- pitches. Now you're putting the, a, a a load on them and making them do things that they probably shouldn't have to do. Uh, one more play they have to make out here. They could have gotten out of this out of this situation. You didn't get them out of it, and now they're having to dig themselves out. So. 100%. Makes all it makes all the difference in the world here. So Evan, if we're, if we're looking at this team now, uh, l- let's look forward a little bit here. Uh, if you're if you're putting this team together next spring, uh, and, w- and with the play of Evan Carter, which has just been phenomenal in the short time he's been here, uh, I, I got to tell you, first of all, before we get into that, I want to say this about Evan Carter. 
I don't remember another player coming up and having this kind of immediate impact for the Rangers. I mean, I don't remember when Mark Teixeira came up, obviously a great player, a, nearly a Hall of Famer. Uh, you know, Pudge Rodriguez probably, when he came up, he was he was great pretty much right away. Uh, but we none of those players, like, I think the last player that came up that was a, a, a big-time prospect in kind of a pennant race situation was probably and Profar, and he came up and he had a he had a home run in his first at bat. Yeah, but Evan Carter came up into a playoff race situation and excelled. Um, when I went back at twenty five games, which included I think the first two postseason games, he had the best twenty five game OPS for uh, a guy in his first twenty five games with the in his career for a Ranger in history. Yes, there's been nobody like him that has come up. There has been nobody that has had the strike zone um, discipline that he's had, and I I think it's been I think in a lot of ways it has influenced the whole team. I think in a lot of ways the Rangers took eleven walks on Saturday, partly because Evan Carter is willing to take walks, and he showed it over and over again. Well, I, I agree with you a hundred percent. You know, when Josh Young came back from his injury, it was brutal watching his at-bats. If somebody was going to throw a slider away from him, uh, a right-hander throwing a slider to him down and out of the zone, he's swinging at it. I mean, he was swinging at pitches. He was missing by a foot. It was it was a brutal to watch him flailing away there. Then all of a sudden, he just stopped. Now, I don't know how much that had to do with the hitting coaches and them telling him, look, you got to lay off those pitches. I don't know how much is, is his own uh, just study, film study. Or how much of it is watching Evan Carter? You have to believe that watching him hit has had an influence on this team. And, and here's the thing about that. When you have a team full of guys who can all go deep, right? All nine guys are capable of hitting the ball out. And they're all willing to take pitches and, 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 and to walk. This is just a disaster for an opposing pitcher. Because if now you're going to get guys on base – you know, you put them in an impossible situation. If I pitch around this guy, he's going to be on base. And the next guy, if I make a mistake, he's going to hit one out. And now I've hit, given up a two-run homer. And look, I mean, the, the move to Mitch Garver in the number three spot on Saturday was clearly the right move. But I, I have entertained any number of questions from people who were upset about Robbie Grossman hitting third. And I get that. But part of it was that Bruce Bochy, it was not so much – about individual performance, it was about the overall construction of the lineup. And putting Grossman in the three spot allowed him to do some other things where he could move some other guys lower, balance out the lineup a little bit more. And so what Bruce Bochy is trying to do and what he has ultimately done now with Garver in the three spot, uh, Carter in the five spot, and Josh Young in the eight spot is really lengthen this lineup out. And that's a large part of why this team scored 11 runs also on Saturday. Uh, there's Absolutely. no there's no easy outs right now. Absolutely. I love that when I asked I asked Bruce Bochy at the press conference Monday, so so Garber hit well third. Are you is he gonna have you have you settled on that now or are you gonna still kind of adjust on the fly depending on the matchups? And he said, I have a rule if if you hit a grand slam, you're in the lineup in the same spot the next day. Which I thought was great. It's a classic Bruce Bochy line. Right. I mean, that's uh, a great, like that's a great example of how Bochy can take a question and just kind of disarm the moment with some kind of corny, old-fashioned, 
dad joke kind of comment, but it works, right? I mean, works to me. Yeah, it worked for everybody. That's what everybody gravitated to. Hey, you, you hit a grand slam, you're in the lineup the next day. Um, and and he's done a really good job of deflecting all that stuff over the course of the year. Look, over the last two weeks, I asked numerous times about the number three spot and what an issue it was. And didn't get a whole lot of answers. But when he can, he gives you some kind of one-liner that kind of distracts or, or diverts from from the from the issue and makes it all go away. I want to say this too about the offense and being more selective. Uh, and, and of course, the, the Rangers drew a lot of walks this year, and and, and 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 you know deservedly. So some of that's just based around the fact whether no matter how selective you want to be, they hit so many home runs. Teams have to be careful around them, right? Uh, but. Look, the, the whole entire success of the Astros over the last few years has been, obviously, they've gotten really good pitching, but that has been one of the most selective lineups in baseball. And, you know, you, you they don't chase. The Astros have had a history of that. When Jeff Lunar took over that team, that was the, the big difference you saw in it was that, you know, with Jose Altuve will swing at anything, but but for the most part they don't they don't chase, and so they put themselves in good position to hit, and that's how you avoid slumps. If you're not chasing, you avoid slumps that way, uh, and and you and you can have a consistent offense, and that's what this team can do now. I, I you know it, it it seems like an easy thing to, to to talk about, and especially when you've got a guy like Adolis Garcia who you know. He gets a hundred mile an hour pitch at his neck, and he's swinging at it. He's still going to do that occasionally. He's you're just going to have to live with Adolis. Uh, he he can't chase as much as he wants to. There's no question about that. But he's never going to come close to an Evan Carter. I don't know. You know, when you got a nine percent chase rate, uh, which is about half the league average, you're you're not going to come close to that. But there are enough guys in that lineup who won't uh, and who 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 can do that and can come closer to that. So. I want to ask you this, Evan. Uh, we're, we're guessing at this point. Uh, you can't. You can't keep Josh Young batting eighth the way he's hitting right now. Doesn't doesn't uh, Nate Lowe have to drop to eight now? Um, again, that's you know you're talking about a righty and a lefty there, and I think a lot of it still comes down to the pitching matchups and what Bochi thinks will make it more difficult on Brandon Hyde or whoever he might be managing against in the next round for relief pitching matchups. Um, so it's not always it's not always meritocracy based on strictly what a guy is doing at the plate. It all goes to and Bochi is good at this, kind of creating this symbiosis of a lineup that works as a as 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 a singular organism. That's what he's trying to do. I will say this, Kevin, to, to your point from one second ago. Look, I, I think the Rangers have identified what they needed to do against fastballs. Um, you know, Donnie Ecker talked a little bit on Sunday about how much they had stressed swinging over the ball, getting on top of the fastball, not trying to hit the ball out, but trying to make hard contact. And if that meant ground balls, that meant ground balls, but they needed more balls in play. And that's still a process when you're asking guys to change swing planes and, and all of that. And so you saw some inconsistency over the last two weeks as guys tried to apply that. Well, it all definitely came together against Grayson Rodriguez. Not only did they have all those walks, but look, Garver had a 30-foot ground ball base hit infield single RBI, right? Jonah Heim had an opposite field single where he reached out on a fastball and just was able to get enough contact to, to, 
to, to kind of guide it the other way. So there is a philosophy there, and I think the Rangers are applying it. But it's not, you know, we, we've said this a million times. Hitting a baseball is a hard thing to do. And they identify these things. They try and process them. And it, right now it feels like they're in a, in a good place until either Baltimore or Houston or Minnesota, whoever comes up with something to counteract, and the Rangers are going to have to adjust again. Well, you know, Vegas believes in them. Bet Online has them winning the World Series, that they're favorites to win the World Series. How about that? Can you find me one person who has made a wager with Bet Online? I don't know. I don't care. It's 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 somebody in, in Las Vegas who says this, and so I'm going with it. Las Vegas is just this huge organism, right? It's it's one big gambling organism. It's 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 unbelievable. It's like this great night. It's like the old it's like the old uh, Jay Leno joke about Evelyn Woods. You know the the speed reading course you know, that she taught. The Evelyn Woods was actually just this huge eyeball, and she just there's guys outside her room with shovels shoveling books into her room like they're shoveling coal into the Titanic. You know. So anyway, I guess you guys. Yeah, good good one, stuff. Kevin. Good story. Good story. <laughs> you know Jay Leno made a Who's big living off that joke. Okay? I don't know if it was particularly that joke. That was that one. I remember laughing my head off when he told that joke. All is, right, is he an old time comic or what? Yeah, he was. He was this guy. He, he was a guy who caught himself on fire recently. Uh, that seems to happen to a lot of comedians for some reason. Why that is, I don't know. Uh, so uh, let's talk a little bit. We, we we can't get out of the podcast, and we'd be remiss without talking about the greatest annual sporting event in Texas. And I got to tell you, boys, that was as good a game as any as I've seen. Uh, out there at the state fair, uh, that that was pretty much wall to wall. Something was happening. Both teams playing an up tempo offense. You would look down for a second, you look back up, and and some wild play is happening on the field. It went from the very first play for Texas, or at least the, the second pass that Quinn Ewers threw an interception, and which led to uh, Oklahoma's first touchdown, to the winning points being scored in the last fifteen seconds of the game. Uh, just back and forth, a lot of fun, a beautiful day out there at the State Fair, capped off by a corn dog. I even treated our our pal Brad Townsend to a corn dog. That's, that's how great the day was. So uh, watching that game, I was I was struck by a couple of things. I don't know if either one of y'all got to see it. Um, was that Oklahoma's defense, even though they gave up thirty points, very opportunistic, uh, did a great job uh, uh, stopping. Texas when it had to. They had four plays inside their two-yard line when Texas tried to score. I, I know there were a lot of people questioning Steve Sarkeesian's play calling. I think I, I really did on that series, trying to do that, trying to, to bull your way to the end zone when clearly you, you were unable to do that. But there are plenty of other times in that game, as, as poorly as Quinn Ewers started out, throwing two interceptions on the first two drives. Um, he was 31-37 for the game for 346 yards. Uh, he he found a lot of receivers wide open. Great play designs by uh, by Texas in that game. Uh, Steve Sarkeesian was not impressed, I don't think, with the game. He he pointed out all their mistakes they made: uh, seven penalties, uh, giving up five sacks, the two interceptions, and also a fumble by Quinn Ewers. Three turnovers. They lost the, uh, that that game as well. So these are things that uh, they obviously had to improve on. But uh, it was a great game to watch, a lot of fun. Oklahoma played well. No question in my mind that uh, in December at the Big 12 uh, title game, these two teams will be back. It, it is a, 
uh, a really, really bad year for everybody else in the Big 12. You know, the commissioner, Brett Yormark, started out the year by by telling Tech fans that, hey, he was pulling for them to make life rough on Texas here in its last lap of the Big 12. And and now that's that's kind of come back to bite him a little bit. He didn't come to the uh, to the uh, state fair on Saturday. Usually, the commissioner does. You know, it's kind of a big game, uh, not much bigger than this one, where one team was ranked fourth in the country and the other was ranked twelfth. Uh, I was told that the commissioner decided to take the weekend off. It's kind of funny to me. Boys, do y'all have any thoughts about Texas OU? No. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Evan. Thanks well, I was a little bit involved. I was a little bit otherwise involved Saturday and really didn't get a chance to watch. But you did say it was a great game. And yeah. I do kind of agree with everything that you said that I think Texas is still in position to potentially get into the CFP if they if they run the table and beat Oklahoma. Probably the same thing exists for Oklahoma if they run the table and beat Texas again, correct? Oh, well, Oklahoma's in. You yeah, know, they'll yeah, be right? They'd be undefeated um, at that point, and and that's and they're a brand name, and they they beat Texas in a big game, and they beat the team that beat Alabama in Tuscaloosa. So yeah, that 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 works for them. Because here's the thing, you know, there was no reason for Texas. I mean, obviously, if you're a Texas fan, you're disappointed by that loss, uh, and they should have won that game probably had they had they not made so many mistakes. There were other things that happened. There were there was at one point in the back of the end zone, they had a defensive back who made a great play, crossed in front of the receiver, had the interceptions in his hands, and dropped it. And the and Oklahoma got a field goal out of that one. So there were there were points lost in several uh, points in the game, but. Uh, in Oklahoma, the four times Oklahoma's gone to the college football playoff, twice they have lost to Oklahoma, uh, lost to Texas at the state fair. So, yeah, you can you can lose that game and still go. You just have to win again in uh, December, and I, and I I do think the winner of that game in December, because I do think those two teams will play each other, will be in the college football playoff. I just don't see anybody else in the Big Twelve getting in their way. Uh, well, Kansas uh, is the only other team that's been ranked, right? And they just came back up into the standings. And- Kansas State was ranked. Uh, you know, and TC was ranked. I mean, they've they've all been ranked at various yeah, points of the season. Yeah. They're just not playing well. I mean, you know, TCU lost uh, its quarterback in the middle of that game. And, uh, you know, Chandler Morrison uh, got beat by Iowa State. Iowa State hasn't done anything all year long. You know, they've Matt Campbell should have taken another job when he had the chance. Uh, the, 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 no one else – has mounted much of a of a, of a, a challenge here. You know, Baylor's really struggling. If if Baylor keeps this up, you know, Dave Aranda might get fired. I, I, I don't think he will. But if they continue to struggle after a bad year last year, you know, two years ago they won twelve games. You know, and now he's in a, put himself in a position where he could get fired. Texas Tech has had a disappointing season so far. Um, it's just. It's not a good. Uh, it's not a good time for them. And before we get out, I, I, do, I should yeah. mention well, obviously real, they real quick. You, you mentioned Oklahoma's defense. This is the best defense they've had in a long time. But the other thing, watching, I, I got to watch the end of that game after getting into uh, San Francisco, and I was struck because I, I kept hearing about how dominant the Texas defensive front is, and how much talent is there, and, and how they've. Uh, this was a better defensive front than UT has had in a, in a long time. And what from, from the part of the game I saw, it, it, that did not come across. 
Well, their, their problem, but you know, the difference in the game was Dylan Gabriel and Quinn Ewers. I mean, yeah. for, for me in college football, here's the issue. If you've got, uh, it's really going to be hard to have your quarterback beat another team from the pocket. I just believe that it, that's just a hard thing to do. You, you don't have these quarterbacks for very long. And, and to do that, that means you've got a scripted offense and you've got a really good offensive line. And those are just difficult things to construct on the fly with the, with the transfer portal and people moving around like, like they do. But if you can got a quarterback who's a two-way threat, who can make things happen with his feet, well, then that, that makes all the difference in the world. Uh, and that's what Dylan Gabriel did in that game. You know, he ran 13 times, I think it was, for like, what, 113 yards? Yeah. The, 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 the whole rest of the backfield rushed for 88 yards in that game. The Texas did stuff the running game. They just couldn't stop Dylan Gabriel. Their their defensive lanes were very poor. There was a play on that last drive where Jalen Ford, who's a really tremendous linebacker for Texas, is, is standing there in front of Dylan Gabriel as he's coming up from the pocket. He's obviously going to run. He runs right at Ford and then turns left, and Ford just watches him run off. You know, you can't do that. Now, I, I do believe in a rematch with these two teams, that Texas defense, if it plays a much more disciplined brand of football, can stop or at least limit Dylan Gabriel. They just let him get loose uh, constantly in that game. And and that was the difference in the game. He just he made all the difference on his own. He made some really nice throws, but he also ran like crazy. And you can't give up 113, 115 yards, whatever it was, to the quarterback. That's, you know, not when you – You've stuffed their their running game otherwise. So that, that, that was another reason for that. But I did want to say before we get out here that, that uh, uh, Alabama played in College Station over the weekend, that game 26-20, to 20, uh, Alabama. Uh, disappointing loss for A&M. I will say that Jimbo Fisher, if nothing else, has demonstrated that he can either beat Nick Saban or at least give him a game. He does that very constantly or consistently. I don't know why – he can't mount as good of coaching performances against everybody else. But they did do that. But that's still a disappointing year for AM. I mean, this was a down year for Alabama. There's no question about that. Jalen Milrose is an, can do certain things, but he's a very limited quarterback. This is the worst Alabama team, I don't know, in the last 15 years. Uh, so this was AM's opportunity to rise up here. Uh, it is and, higher than third in the West. Exactly. You know, th- this is it. I mean, the LSU's, LSU has stumbled around, right? I mean, who was really going to be your competition in the West? This was A&M's year, and they're not going to do it. You know, it is – It is now, look, losing Connor Wigman, you know, and, and Max Johnson is now the quarterback, and uh, that's, a, that's a downgrade. Uh, Connor Wigman's a really good talent. I really like him uh, as a young quarterback. But Max Johnson is still pretty good. He's a good backup quarterback. Uh, this team should be good enough to win those games, especially with the talent they've assembled there. There, there are no excuses. So I think that Jimbo's still on that short leash. Uh, I don't think that you know finishing nine and four is is he's not going to get fired this year. They they just still owe him too much money. But they're not happy with him. There's no question about that. There there is uh, little that he can do at this point, to bail himself out, even after bringing Bobby Petrino in to run his offense. 
All right, fellas, that's going to do it for our uh, broad, our po- broadcast, our podcast this week. Uh, the, when we talk to you next time, we'll have a lot better idea of where the Rangers are and whether they've moved on to the ALCS, whether they're playing the Astros. How about wouldn't that be something, Evan? The the baseball world comes to Texas uh, for the American League Championship. All right, my God, yeah. I uh, let me ask you. You guys are better familiar with this. Was there ever a Mavericks Spurs or Mavericks Rockets playoff series that drew an incredible number of eyeballs and passion? Yeah, Mavericks yeah, Spurs. A, Mavericks yeah, Spurs was always sure. big. Yeah, absolutely. Don't you remember? That went over several years. Yeah. Yeah, Mark Cuban complaining about the Riverwalk, the dirty water in the Riverwalk. Yeah, that was that was a really good series. That was, but I, I will say, um, just been a minute. I, it's been a minute, and when you take into consideration that the um, the the Rangers and Astros probably are, are, are an older, uh, the, those two teams have been around longer. Uh, so that, this, would that might biggest, this would be the biggest playoff series between Texas teams ever, right? Sure, I mean because it never happened, of course, with the Oilers and and uh, Cowboys because they were in two different conferences or two different leagues. And, but uh, and it would top any of the NBA series. I I think so, probably. Uh, I don't well, think they it ever the got... Western Conference Finals. Dallas. And get... Yes, that's right. Western yeah, there was Finals. the Western Conference Finals. That's correct. That was a big series. That's when Dirk really rose up and kind of made his bones uh, as as a player. Uh, here in this market and, and league wide, but yeah, it would be big uh, to have that. The bigger thing to me is that finally the series means something, right? You know, the, the silver boot. Who yep. cared? You know, somebody would go and have to find the silver boot trophy, which was in John Blake's trunk, broken. Uh, it, it was at one point in time, and it's it's been missing, I believe, for several years. It was last spotted at a Bucky's, I believe, in Madisonville. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, I, I we're saying this all prematurely, but I do I will we will have to get our investigative team on that. If the Rangers and Astros are playing at this point in time next week, we will get you an answer on exactly where the silver boot trophy is and what happened to it in the past few years. Yes, and as I wrote today, if the the, the Astros and the Rangers could make this into a baseball state, if the Cowboys don't first. <laughs> Yeah, that was another thought that I had. Is it seems like Cowboys losses take on a whole level, different level of panic during years when the Rangers are winning in the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I got, Jerry's got to be unhappy about the fact that they're playing so well. Uh, gets people an alternative uh, to the Cowboys. All right, so that's going to do it for this week. We we thank you for listening, and you hope you'll come back next week, and we'll have more of this good stuff. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you.